series, Bless This Home. And Scott and I were talking about um, Rooted and some other things and just getting to know each other better. And he was sharing with me a little bit about his grandfather. And I really wanted you all to hear this because we think about, um, you know, when someone walks through the door of our home, um, we want them to be blessed. And I know as a mother... Um, when I opened the door to my children, I really wanted them to be blessed. And what does it look like um, as pe the people of God to be those that are actually um, blessing and, and giving our kids and anybody, our family, the people, our neighbors, anybody who comes through the door, what they're really hungering and thirsting for. So we're going to hear a little bit from um, Scott about his grandpa, and there's going to be a picture of him coming up here. So awesome. go ahead. All right. Well, it's a joy to share with you. Um, the story goes back quite a ways. This is a picture of my grandfather here. Doesn't he look like him? Yeah, people say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this picture, actually, well, this story goes back uh, to my great-grandparents. My great-grandparents had four kids at the time. My grandfather was about two years old when my great-grandmother um, had went to fetch water from a well and had dropped her comb into the well. And when that happened... Uh, she tried desperately to get that comb out because it was something that her, my great-grandfather had made for her. So trying, 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 terrible weather, freezing cold outside, trying to get this thing out of the well. When my great-grandfather came home, he said, don't worry about it, I'll make you a better one. I'll make you another one. But she said, one more try. And one more try turned into a lot more tries until eventually my great-grandfather lowered himself into the well to get the comb. Uh, at one point... The rope became slack, and as she called out for him, it, there was no response. My grandfather, great-grandfather died in the well that day, and my great-grandmother uh, had become so sick that she died within a week later. So my grandfather was an orphan at two years old. They were moved into an orphanage, and eventually the kids got separated, and they went their different ways. But when uh, my grandfather was about 12 years old, his other, older brother and the older sisters had already gotten out of their uh, foster orphanage system and um, had moved to the United States. And Daniel went back to look for my grandfather, Rosendo. And when he went back, he found him, eventually found him in a field working barefoot at 12 years old. The man who had adopted him had turned him into more of a servant. Um, but my, uh, my great-uncle rescued him that day and said, I'm your brother Daniel, and I'm taking you out of here. And he took him to the United States, where uh, he began a new life in the United States. It was interesting, actually, before they came over to the United States, they put a suit on my grandfather, and they brought him to a train station, and they were getting ready to come over to the United States. And my grandfather's at the train station barefoot, sitting there, um, and my great uncle Daniel, he said, uh, he said, stay here and pretend you're reading this newspaper. I'm going to go get you some shoes. So he's there. And when Daniel came back with the shoes, my great grandfather was there and he was holding the newspaper and he's holding it upside down, <laughs> pretending to be reading the paper. He didn't know how to read. So eventually my grandfather got married and he moved to California and him and about five kids at this point, um, living in this area, and he was a professional gambler. He was a drinker, a womanizer, and uh, made a living by betting on horses. Well, 
this lifestyle of his turned uh, into a lifestyle of depression and darkness. And at one point, he had decided that he was going to take his life. And that night, he drove out to a bridge where he was going to drive his car off of the bridge to end it. While speeding up on that bridge that night, my grandfather heard an audible voice call his name, Rosendo. It made him slam the brakes and freak out. So he went home. He never went off the bridge. He went home, and he went to decompress that night. He went in his room, and he said, after I heard that voice, I saw a spot in my vision. And when I went home, that spot, when I got alone, that spot opened up, and he said he saw a woman on a donkey, pregnant woman on a donkey with a man walking beside her. He had no context for this. He had no way to sort what that was. He told my grandmother what that was, and she said, I think you might have saw Mary. So he remembered a Spanish-speaking radio minister that he had heard, a guy over in Fremont, and he gave him a call, and he told him what happened, and this man came to my grandfather's house, and he, uh, he told him the story of Christ, and he told him what he saw, and my grandfather gave his heart to the Lord that day. And this man, for the next three months, would come to the house three times a week to tell him more and more about Jesus. My grandfather's story began to expand. He began to um, seek what uh, the Lord had for him, and he began to try and read his Bible. And as he would try, he was teaching himself to read while reading his Bible. And my mom's siblings actually talk about how they saw him at the table going super slow through the Word of God, learning to read and gaining the knowledge that was in that book. And I, my mom shares stories. She says, you know, I remember when all the kids would go to bed. This was 12 kids by this point. So 12 kids. And uh, she says, I remember when we would go to bed, how, my, how he would walk in the hallway and he would pray for us all by name. And he would pray for the neighbors. And he would pray for friends. And he would pray for the people that they knew that were hurting. And she said, nightly, she would hear that. And so for me, I look, and I, I remember when I was a kid, and I was looking for my mom, and the house was not that big, but I would find her sometimes in the dark praying at her bedside. And I watched as she had her well-worn Bible, her King James Version with the little clear index tab sticking out the side, and how she still uses that Bible today. And I thought my grandfather was an example of that, and my mom followed it. And I watched her do that and become a blessing to our home, and I take that with me today. Um, my grandfather began to tell people about the Lord, and uh, as he did, people came over and they started studying the Bible together. As that Bible study just started growing and growing in this house right across the street from the field at Hoover School, they, uh, they had this Bible study that went crazy. And one of the siblings would bang on the piano and they'd sing Spanish worship, worship songs. And eventually, it, there was people in the hallway, there was people out on the porch, there was all these people that were coming to learn about Christ. They started a church. And it stands in Redwood City today, it's Templo La Luz, and they meet on the corner of Woodside and Alameda and continue to be a ministry. And I look at it and I think, if God can do that with an orphan, a shoeless, illiterate, orphan how can he interrupt me how can i find my rhythms to be a seeker of him to be a prayer to be a to be someone who wears out my bible 
how can I be that person and what will it change and what will it affect? Mm. So. Thanks, Scott. Gary's going to come up in a moment, but I just thought we could pray briefly for our own homes out of that. Lord, um, I thank you for the legacy um, that Scott shared. I pray that you would make us people who would share our story with our children and our grandchildren, that we would not shy away from the wondrous works that you do. Lord, I thank you that how you adopt us, and if any in, any in this room are in that place of needing to be adopted. God, may they see you, Jesus, today calling out to them. You are um, inviting them into, their, into the, your forever family, and we are incredibly grateful to be a part of it. We love you, Jesus, and commit our homes um, to you. Amen. Morning, everybody. Just kind of in awe of that story. That's uh, amazing. And, and uh, maybe like me, that's not your story of legacy of faith like that. I'm more of the grandfather's generation, right? I, Ann and I both came to Christ in, in our generation, didn't have that up. Uh, so it's never too late. We want you to know this all week and all series long. It's never too late to start being a home that is blessed, that is Christ-centered. It's never too late for any of us. Okay? Amen? All right. Hey, uh, if this was your home, and this was your front door, and I've actually been wanting to do this all morning long. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Of the no, sorry. If this was your front door, what stories would it tell of what goes on inside your house? If your door could talk, what would it say? Uh, probably like me, your door would tell stories that you'd be proud of. And your door would tell stories that you'd be ashamed of. Uh, just this last week, this door, this was our front door, would tell you a story. Friday night, um, my youngest daughter, Jojo, she's eight years old. And she, we just have her this weekend. All the other girls, most of my girls are out of the house. But then Bella, who's a high schooler, is in Kentucky with her older sister. So it's just Joe. And I put her to bed, and we go through a whole bedtime routine, and she has an iPad, and she put up Focus on the Family. They have uh, the Adventures in Odyssey. Didn't you grow up listening to that, Adventures in Odyssey? All right, two of us, right? On. Um, <laughs> and it's a story about, it's a, it's a parables. And, and she was listening to that, and her, uh, her iPad ran out of battery, unbeknownst to me. And so she went into our room and got my iPad and was listening to Adventures in Odyssey on my iPad. I had a big meeting yesterday, and I was stressed about the meeting, and all my notes were on the iPad that I had the meeting for, and so I went to go look for it, and I couldn't find it. And I'm, Ann, where's my iPad? I don't know. And I look, and JoJo says, I have it, Daddy. And my stress got the best of me. What? You got my iPad? Meanwhile, she's listening to a biblical story. <laughs> you got my iPad? Ah, oh, Bella, you can't do that. I would never talk to my wife that way. I wouldn't be here if I talked to my wife that way, right? But she didn't have power, so I could talk to her that way. And, and I took my iPad, and I left, and, and I go to sleep, and, and I'm studying for my Christian meeting the next day. And I hear crying in the next room. Oh, thanks. Now, just heap shame on me. Go ahead. I can take it. Okay. And so I uh, open her bedroom door, and I say, Jojo. Did daddy's words hurt you? Yes, dad. 
yes, I am so sorry. Now that's on me, right? But then I did what you should do, and I don't always do this, but thank God I did Then I put the power on her. I said, will you find it at some point in your heart to forgive daddy? That's all on her, right? Now she has the power. I'm sorry, I have the power. Will you forgive me? I just gave her the power in this relationship. Yes, daddy. Kids are so resilient. And I, I just crawled in the bed, put on focus on the family, and just laid with her. Okay? So if my door could talk this week, it would tell you a story of daddy bullying up on his daughter. Wednesday night, if this door could talk, it would tell you that I was in a leadership meeting down below here with Sean and others who lead this church and Dane. And, and uh, my text messages on the Gadini family chat line blew up. Bella had gone to Mexico. She's a freshman in high school, Sequoia High School. And uh, God did an amazing work in Bella's heart in Mexico, like we heard all last week. And so Belle came back and told us, I don't want to see Sequoia High School the same anymore. And we had this strategy we're going to invite all of you into. It's called Invest and Invite, where you leverage your relationship and your reputation for the good of God and the good of people and the glory of God. And so she had been doing that and brought a friend to Wednesday night youth group. And Wednesday night at some point, it's blowing up right now with my girls, but at uh, some point, uh, it starts saying, Bella's saying, I need verses. My friend wants to receive Christ. What does the Bible say? How do I tell her to receive Christ? And her friend had come to the youth group, saw him, what God was doing in the youth group, and saw the people and stepped outside. And so when I came home at 1030, I just texted her some verses, and did. When I stepped in, Bella was just going nuts. She said, Daddy! She prayed to receive Christ. Do you believe it? And we just did a little happy dance together. I won't do it for you. Uh, I don't want more shame brought my way. Um, and I looked at her and I said, Belle, Belle, do you know some adults in their whole lifetime never get to witness what you just experienced? Leveraging a relationship, taking a risk, and this very thrill. It's not about you, but the thrill. You gave yourself to God and look what he did. So I imagine you're somewhere between those two places. If your door could talk, what stories would it tell? We're starting this brand new series, and I'm so excited because we're endeavoring in this 2025 vision to see God raise up Christ-centered homes. And you'll see, we'll, we'll bet this out, big difference between a Christ-centered and a Christian home, big difference. Uh, and we're going to use the Beatitudes to overlay this. And we're going to talk about what that means, a Christ-centered home. Today we're going to talk about as a home, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then next week we're going to talk about as a home, living for purity. And then the following week we'll talk about as a home, being persecuted. Because if you want to live as a Christ-centered home, especially on the peninsula, let alone around the world, but here on the peninsula, we're going to get pushback. So you just expect it. We'll equip you with that. And then as a home, being a peacemaker, because there are occupants in the home that are peace takers, and there are occupants in the home that are peacemakers. This is all from the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave. And I know some of you are sitting here, I'm looking at your faces, and you don't live in an intact family in a home. You're going, bummer, wrong time to go to church. No, this is the best time to be in church gathered with his people, because I first learned about some of these things when I was in college. Um, and as a matter of fact, I learned everything I needed to know about a Christ-centered home uh, from 18 to 21, not just from sermons like we're going to have, but from living with my roommates in college. We didn't endeavor to set up a Christ-centered home, but those three other men 
were passionate about following Christ, and I had just come to Christ out of a fraternity where I had a lot of fun. It was just destructive fun. But over time, living for Christ became more fun. My values changed. Why? Because I went home every night in college, my sophomore and junior year, to a Christ-centered home with roommates who love me. So if you're not in a nuclear family or whatever, you know what? This is the best time to get this series, okay? And we all need to have Christ-centered homes. Whether you go home to an apartment with roommates or you go home to a spouse or whether you go home uh, single, best time to be here, okay? This is what we're going to do. Now let me ask you this question. Here's our theme verse this morning. Can we go to the next slide, please? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How many of you want your house to be blessed? Okay, those of you not raising your hand. How many of you want your house to be cursed? (laughs) Right, none of us, right? Uh, But what does it mean to be blessed? What did Jesus mean? He used this word seven times in this sermon. It's his opener for his most famous sermon called the Beatitudes. That word blessed means to be deeply contented and fulfilled. But here's what's unique to this word that Jesus used. It's a Greek word. Jesus didn't speak English. Uh, The word he used is called makarios, makarios. And what was unique to that word, it was a deep fulfillment and contentment that was, you ready for this? Contained. It wasn't dependent on circumstance. And that blows my mind because here in the West, when people ask me how I'm doing and when I usually say, oh, I'm so blessed, Majority of the time, I'm pointing to an external circumstance. And there's, it's okay, right? I'm, I'm really thanking God, but how are you doing, Gary? Oh, I'm so blessed. Why? Why are you blessed? Oh, my, my daughter got into the college of her choice. I'm so blessed. Uh, or you know what? My, my job is going so great. We hit our goal. Giving is back on track. I'm so blessed. Right? Don't you do that too? When you say you're blessed, you point to something outside of you. I just want to say, that's okay. That's okay. We're giving thanks. But biblically... Big time different than what Jesus meant. Uh, this word came from the first century Greeks who uh, actually was spoken of in a, of an island called Cyprus. Cyprus was ideally located, that it, the Greeks thought it had the ideal tropic, it had the ideal soil, everything grew in Cyprus. You could have the idyllic life on Cyprus. So they called Cyprus the blessed island, the Makarios island. Because everything you needed for a happy life was there in Cyprus. And Jesus said, I'm going to take that word and use it about me. And remember, he's speaking to people, majority, two-thirds of whom were slaves. Uh, the, all of them, and I believe even Jesus, had a deep hunger, physical pang. None of us know that here in the West. But he was hungry and thirsty. And he said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God's character... You'll be blessed. You can have in Christ everything you need to have an inner contentment and joy and fulfillment. Don't we want that? Don't we all want that? I came to Christ banking on the fact that he would fill me in a way that circumstance couldn't. That abundant life didn't mean I get the right parking lot at church and I get the right raise. And at the end of the month, I have more money in the account than outside the account. That debt goes down and I marry the right person and my kids all line up. Jesus didn't point to that when he said, you'll have abundant life. He said, I will give you life, and I'll give it to you abundantly. So that's what it means to have a blessed life. Now look, Jesus promised some things in this passage, and we have a responsibility. What's Jesus' responsibility? To bless us. What's our responsibility? 
if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let me ask this next question. In your home, what are you hungering and thirsting for? If your door could talk, what would it say is a prevailing hunger in your home? What drives your conversation? What drives your values? What creates your conflict? What are you hungering and thirsting for? Jesus says there is a distinctive to Christ-centered followers. They cultivate a constant craving for me, for my character. And we all fall short of this, right? Your doors are probably no different than my doors. They could talk about the highs and the lows. And that's why we all have grace and why we gather here every Sunday to celebrate God's grace in our lives. But let me ask, what are you hungering and thirsting for? A key thought throughout our series, the bottom of page one, you're going to hear this throughout, is this. We are not just a Christian home. I would hope this would be the moniker over every apartment with roommates, over every home that you go home to, regardless of who fills it. We are not just a Christian home. We are a Christ-centered home. Who I am today came about primarily the foundation of it. Certainly my last 26 years of marriage and what have molded this. But the foundation came from the first three years of being a follower of Jesus and inadvertently stepping into a Christ-centered home with roommates. Now, what won't work, let's talk about this, top of page one, a Christian home, a Christian home. And here's what I mean by that. Usually a Christian home is filled with one or two occupants, uh, legalistic Christianity, uh, a Christianity that focuses, focuses on the do's and don'ts, a Christianity that follows the rules but leaves the heart way behind. Uh, that was my home growing up. If this door could talk, growing up in Novato, 536 Stone Drive, great home, secure home, always had what I needed, never worried about my parents divorcing, all about the rules. And let me tell you, when I was 17 and I walked out of this door and went to college, I said goodbye to religion because it just made me feel terrible. Write this down if you're taking notes. This is worth taking to the bank. It's not original to me. I learned it from a guy named Josh McDowell. It's fill-in, page one. I don't usually do fill-ins, but I'm doing it this week. Stirring it up a little bit, keeping you on your toes. <laughs> Rules without a relationship leads to rebellion. Rules without a relationship leads to rebellion. Now, there's a place for rules, but let me just tell you, if there is a silver bullet, take it from the dad of five daughters. And uh, again, I am not the poster child uh, of this, and we haven't done it perfectly. But if there is a silver bullet, it's that relational piece, the developing of the relational capital. So just like in our relationship with the Lord, right? When God calls us to obedience in areas we don't understand, what does God say? He doesn't say, okay, I'll let you fully into my plan. He doesn't say that. He says this. Trust my heart. I know you don't understand. It's not my job. If I gave you my full plan, you would implode. So trust my heart. That's what we're to model in a Christ-centered home. Rules without a relationship, recipe for rebellion. Okay, a legalistic home doesn't work. Here's another thing that doesn't work. Lukewarm Christianity, tepid Christianity. What do I mean by this? I'm taking a verse from Revelation chapter 3, a word from it. But it's when we believe in God, but live like he doesn't exist. 
Uh, this is a Christianity of convenience. Uh, when the values you have as we gather in here are separate from the values you have when you live out there. And that's lukewarm Christianity. We all have a degree of that. I was, um, gosh, this must have been, I don't know, 12 years ago. My family and I were headed to a family camp. I was the conference speaker. Uh, the theme of the camp was actually the blessed family. We got in, and I was in what my daughters call travel mode. Any other dads have travel mode? Good, two of us. Good, thank you. Rest of you, liars. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I, I really am kidding. Um, we get to LAX. I'm freaking out because we have to catch a, uh, you know, a, a, a transport into the Long Beach Ferry Terminal and go to Catalina Island. And um, we're down there, and we're getting all the luggage. And then one of my daughters says, I'm hungry. A daughter should be able to say they're hungry. Okay? I'm the dad. Their whole world was created by me and, and mom. We're going on this trip because of us. So Ann says, we got to get something to, to get them in to drink. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, dang it. Bless are those who hunger and thirst, you know? <laughs> so anyway, I didn't say that. So, so we go by the, uh, the food court, and they get all stuff. I get a smoothie for me, and then someone says, I left my luggage somewhere. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And so I go, wait here. I'm going to go get my luggage. And so I go get my luggage, the luggage they lost or something, and I'm coming back, and I see my family. I'm, I kid you not. They're just lined up like the Von Trapps. <laughs> They're scared. And my oldest daughter, Hannah, who's a teenager at the time, comes up and meets me and says this to me, pray for grace, Dad. Pray for grace. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, someone had knocked over my smoothie, and I lost it. Um, now, let me ask you a question. <laughs> now that you've heaped more shame on me, I'm not speaking to you anymore. I'm just going to tell you good stories of Gary. Um, what 16-year-old needs to tell her dad, pray for grace? What 12-year-old, 8-year-old, 4-year-old needs to be afraid when a $3 smoothie gets knocked over? That's lukewarm living right there. I would never do that in here. Bro, if I asked you to hold my smoothie and you spilled it and we were in church, you're like, oh, I spilled your smoothie. Like, Praise God. Wow, God bless you. Here's a bunch of grace. <laughs> But alone at LAX, when no one can see me, my true heart comes out. Bottom line, lukewarm Christianity is this. In lukewarm Christianity, Christian homes hunger and thirst, you ready, for rights, not for righteousness. How many times has my wife heard me say, I deserve to be left alone. I deserve to have this. I need this. I work hard. I da -da 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 -da. Really? Rights? Really? We serve a man who gave up his life on a cross, and we call him Lord and Savior. What rights do you claim to have? Christian homes don't change the world. Do you know 75% of America identifies as a Christian home? I'm going to give you a really overused illustration. I know most of you heard this before. You go to In-N-Out, you order a one-pound burger, 75% Christian, and you say to them, Put three quarters of a pound of salt on that burger. Don't you think you'd taste the salt? If 75% of our homes identify as being salt and light, don't you think our country would be different? Yeah. Christian homes don't change the world. What does? A Christ-centered home. Turn to page two. A Christ-centered home. And remember, it's never too late to start 
living into a Christ-centered home. We believe in grace around here. Christ-centered home is where Jesus isn't just part of the home. He's the center. I told you I learned most of what I learned from when I was a uh, roommate at Sac State with my roommates. I remember these Christ-centered followers. I mean, we were excited about following Christ. All of us had been saved out of crazy lifestyles and destructive things. And so I remember my first date with my roommates. I wasn't dating them, but I was going on a date. And I said, I, I don't, it was a Christian girl. She was a pastor's daughter. Her name was Karen. And I, I said, I, I don't know what to do on a Christian date. Like, it's nothing, I have no category for this. And my roommate gets out this big King James Bible. He says, here's what you do. He hands it to me. He says, keep this between you and her the whole time. <laughs> so I didn't have a car in college. And I, I took his car. His car was a, this is a true story, it was a doghouse before he bought it. And this car was a dump of a car. Four-cylinder, one of them was broken, a three-cylinder car. And I picked Karen up, and there's a huge little Toyota, a huge Bible between us. She says, what's that? I'm like, it's a Bible. She says, what's it doing there? I'm like, it's protecting you. <laughs> I was told not to cry. We're going to be okay, you know. That's Christ-centered. That's not a bad theology. To keep Jesus between you guys, roommates, keep Jesus between each other. Husbands, keep Jesus between you and your spouse. Parents, keep Jesus between you and your kids. Keep Jesus between you and your neighbors. That's a Christ-centered home. Look at this verse, Psalm 63, verse 1. A psalmist, I think Jesus was actually alluding to this verse when he gave the beatitude. He said, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Wow. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. Here's how we'll mold that. And the reason I'm going to give it to you in this version, it's in your notes in this version, is because I want you to claim this for your family. Like with that beautiful picture of Scott's grandfather walking the halls. Tonight when you walk the halls, here's what you can pray over your home. Here it is. You, God, are our God. Earnestly, we seek you. And you're, maybe you're saying, gosh, that's the farthest thing from my home. This is where it starts. Start praying this. Ask God to create this. You being a Christ-centered home, it's less about you and more about God. Trust him with that power. We thirst for you. Our whole family longs for you. And you pray down the generations. Now, I'm going to ask you another point in question, okay? In grace. See where it says you, God? What would you put after you? You, job promotion, are my God. I've heard so many people say, I've just got to get that promotion, and then I'll spend more time around the home. You, golf score, are my God. You, Instagram likes, are my God. See what I'm getting at here? Seek first the kingdom of God. We'll talk about this. Like, put God where he belongs. That's what it means to be a Christ-centered home. And if you find yourself having other things there, grace to you. But don't leave here with that same priority list. God has you here to make some choices. And life isn't so much about circumstances as it is with the choices we make with the circumstances handed to us. And God has us all here to meet his grace and make some choices. Here's four that I would recommend for you. A Christ-centered home makes these choices. First, seeks God. Seeks God. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you. 
as well. We've all been in a situation, maybe you haven't. I remember Ann has a story of being in Chicago and uh, when we were, gosh, t- over 20 years ago in a mall and a mom had lost a child in the mall. And Ann picked up on the mom's freneticism and she was frantic. And Ann said, where is she? What did she look like? She just picked up on it. And store owners came out and suddenly what mattered more than securing their store and making sure no shoplifters get in What mattered more to the mother than buying whatever she went to the mall to buy was to find the precious thing that was lost. Jesus says this in this passage, there is something more precious in your life than anything else, anything. That's why it says seek first. A Christ-centered home keeps first things first. First things first. Now, you know how um, Facebook is the new hallmark You know that, right? So um, five years ago, my daughter was in the Congo, my oldest daughter, and uh, she wrote me on Father's Day this message via Facebook, and I had no idea the unintended consequence of what would happen in the times that God's grace enabled me to seek him first. Here's what she said on Father's Day five years ago. Daddy, it's not quite Father's Day yet. Remember, she's in Africa. But I never really know when I'll get a chance to access the Internet. Right now, it's 5 a.m. your time, so that means you'll probably be getting up soon to work out, then to read your Bible and to pray for us. I know your routine so well because over the years, you've always had those faithful rhythms of discipline and discipleship, and I always knew when I woke up, I could find you in your chair praying for us. It's the very thing Scott testified about his grandfather and his mother. The unintended consequence. See, in your spirit, in your home, here's the reality. And this is the difference between Christianity and a Christ-centered home. Spiritual values aren't only taught the way God designed it. And I could build this out if I had a lot, you know, hours in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and other places in the Bible. They're to be caught. They're to be caught. Your kids see what you're doing and your actions, our actions, speak a lot louder than our words. Seek first, okay? Then a Christian home slows down. Slows down. Perhaps the biggest threat to a Christ-centered home is the breathless pace with which we live our lives. I love the story of a first grader who wondered why her daddy was always late for dinner and always checking his phone during the bedtime routine. Her mother explained, well, daddy has so much to do, he can't finish it all at the office. Well, then, his first-grade child uh, asked innocently, why don't don't they put Daddy in a slower group? (laughs) Perhaps this is the area, men and women, uh, that would be, you'll get the quickest response to a Christ-centered home, slowing down. Our family created a rule because Daddy couldn't control his phone. Uh, My Psalm 63 would say, you, smartphone, are my God. Earnestly, I seek texts and stuff to do at church. So there's there's a, you come into our house, there's a piece of furniture right there with a drawer, and our family says, surrender your weapon. When I come home at night, it goes in the drawer. Most nights, I'm doing pretty good, huh? Yeah, my wife's right here. But when did this become a weapon? When this became my God. And it became a weapon because it hurt my kids. And it hurt my marriage. And something that God gave somebody the ability to create, I took out of bounds. And what was meant for good is now meant for pain and being used for pain. Slow down. I don't know what that looks like for you, 
but it would be a great conversation with your roommates if you're not married or your spouse or your kids. Slow down. Then, a, a Christ-centered home plans wisely. It plans wisely. Look at this next verse. The plans of the righteous are just. What? Yeah, yeah, Righteous. And all I did in this study was take the word righteous. You can do this in, um, in BibleGateway.org. It's a free website with the Bible on it. I just entered the word righteous. This is a sermon that any of us could preach, right? I just did a word study on righteous. The righteous have plans? Yeah, they have plans. They have priorities. And it's really not as hard as we think. And I've just got some practical application in there based on tons of studies I've read this week. Like prioritizing sharing a meal together. Uh, there used to be this piece of furniture in a home. It, it, it was called the dinner table or the breakfast table. Regardless of your schedule, it should be prioritized. I, I, I double-dog dare you to Google this week benefits of the family meal. And you look at what University of Chicago says in University of Washington, the American Psychiatric Association, study after study after study show the health, social, identity benefits that come around a family meal. That's where values are transferred. And then prioritize, you might think this is self-serving. No, no, no. I, I have again in my footnotes, New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Stanford, Red Book Magazine, University of Chicago. I've got tons of study to back this up. Prioritize weekly gathering at church. If I were to call all those together, there's five benefits that people that don't even believe in God. Look at the Christ-centered people that make Sunday gathering a priority. And here's what they say. These are people that have no skin in the game, these secular universities. It significantly lowers the risk of depression, they found. People that prioritize gatherings as a church. You have better time in life management. You get, uh, your kids, families that, better, that prioritize church have better grades and higher educational prospects. Uh, there's a longer life expectancy. The fifth benefit, couples that prioritize church have better sex lives. Wow, did he just say that? Yes, he did. It's crazy. God says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things are added to you. They prioritize gatherings of church. The last one, uh, you can see fun traditions, mission. I, I wish I had more time to build this out, but the last one I, I want to close with this. The fourth one lives authentically. Lives authentically. So let me go through these. Seeks God's, seeks God, not God's, slows down, plans wisely, lives authentically. Look what it says in Proverbs 13. Verse 5, the righteous hate what is false. And men and women, is a great place to end because if the cross gave us anything, it gave us the chance to be authentic. <laughs> I, I got news for you. I've said this before. Jesus doesn't love the you that you think you should be. Jesus doesn't love you without that habit that you're ashamed of. Jesus loves you just as you are right now. The you with all your shame, that's the Jesus died for. And on the cross, he gives us the freedom to have nothing to lose, nothing to hide, everything to live for. And if I could just ask you, please, if you live with roommates, whether it's a spouse or roommates or kids, your roommates deserve to hear when you blow it, I am so sorry. That's on you. But then to turn and give them the power, will you forgive me?
If you blow in front of your kid, like I tell you I did, they deserve for you to get on their level and say, Daddy was so wrong. Will you forgive me? Your kids and grandkids, if you haven't told them your story of faith, that's your application before Monday morning. Send an email, write a letter, call them up, give them that story. I mean, probably not as dramatic as Scott's story, but what a legacy. Do you understand the, the, the power he has in that? For me, my story with my girls is, you know what? I didn't have Christ when you, I was your age. And I'm living with scars from it, and we talk about that. When they say, Daddy, I don't have a good testimony. I wish I had a good testimony. I'm like, I thank God you don't have a good testimony. I'm living with the pain of a good testimony. Tell them your story of faith. You have nothing to hide. And I just want to say as we close, I'm over time. You have nothing to hide when you come here either. I pray that we'd be one day the day where we ask, how you doing? Instead of getting, I'm doing great, you'd say, Man, I am hurting. I blew it so bad last night. My wife is sitting in that section. I'm sitting over here, and we're not talking to each other. And some would go, but you're here. Praise God. Oftentimes, I sit in the back, and people come in late, and they're like, sorry, I'm late. I'm like, dude, I'm just glad you're here. I don't care what you came out of. You're here. Let's celebrate grace. And let's never be the same. It's never too late to start being a Christ-centered home. Amen? Father, we want to leverage your grace right now. We've sung of it. We worship you for it. We've heard of it, Lord, in the story of Scott's grandfather. And, Lord, may we all be icons of it. We saw and just spent, gosh, Lord, 10 weeks in the book of Galatians because your grace is more powerful than legalism and ritual and lukewarm Christianity. We want grace. Flood us, Lord, with resolve to be Christ-centered. And when we fall short, Flood us with your grace to remind us that we need you every day. Pray for this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Covenant Church Podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.